0: I'm Dr. Paul Ramos. I'm a wildlife vet, passionate about storytelling how connected we are to nature and to each other. In 2020, I went to Australia as part of the bushfire relief effort to help save wild animals.
1: It's, you know, we're, we're talking, here are the Australian bushfires, which feels like a decade ago, um, given how much has gone on in the world uh since it's hard to believe that this was just you know 5 months ago we were in, still in the midst of this crisis 6 months ago really in the near its peak um mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I, I don't know about you guys but it it feels like it was such a long time ago
0: i can't believe we're still in the same year here um yeah it's, right. it feels like <laughs> just like a different life stage ago that um i was in australia um fighting the fight um, at the Cool face of the bushfires, and and now here I'm, like literally, quarantined in my own home, as as with mm-hmm. the rest of the world. It's it's a it's a weird
1: time. Super yeah. weird. Yeah, I, I and I remember with the bushfires, you know, there's all this talk of, oh man, 2020 is not off to a good start. You know what I mean? Like, right? Like, <laughs> uh, what kind of? You know we, you know, I, I remember there was like, uh, hashtag delete January. Yeah, which it was just because yeah. like in the, in the end of January we also had the loss of uh, Kobe Bryant which right. you know for those for those in, in the U.S. but I think in the in the world uh, Kobe really meant a lot to a lot of people um, and certainly was a superstar in a global sport so I remember just between the bushfires and Kobe's loss just thinking like all right well January's out of the way thank God yeah, we get to and February not- and
0: <laughs> mercy yeah wave the <laughs> yeah. white flag
1: <laughs> yeah now it's looking back and like you know january was yeah january was january the, was awesome the, yeah but, i yeah, miss january yeah, i don't know about i don't know about awesome but well it was not awesome for many many people and, and lots of wildlife in australia which we're going to talk about but yeah it, it it does put things in perspective a little bit um but these things are also all you know interrelated in a lot of ways like, it, what's what we're going to get to with australia which i think is really, really interesting about this discussion is that the cause of the bushfires, you can relate to both, um, global warming and climate change and systemic oppression of indigenous practices. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
1: and it's so kind of fitting that we've seen both of those things at such a larger global scale now with coronavirus tied to the exploitation of wildlife in the natural world and Mm -hmm. the pushback on police brutality, systemic racism, that is, you know, at the epicenter in the United States right now, but is also bleeding in, and happening in other pockets of the world. And it's so interesting to me that both of those things are really directly related to why these bushfires um, were so bad. And uh, and that's what makes this discussion also, now doing it six months later, you know, sort of, uh, you know, very interesting on, on a lot of levels.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's interesting because sometimes you might think these are just different sort of silos or like perspectives only that are just very narrow in terms of these issues of minority rights and oppression and, and climate change in the bigger picture. But it is amazing how it's all connected. I mean, I remember, um, even, you know, you had some voter suppression, um, back in 2000 during the sort of the, the Bush Gore election and literally mm-hmm. less than a few hundred people, um, if, if more than a, just a few hundred people could have voted, Gore would have won and we would have, it would have had a different world than we do now. So literally mm-hmm. like there, there are very real impacts um, um, of, of racism on, on the bigger picture that affect all of us. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, so Paul, uh, jumping into Australia a little more, why don't you just sort of walk us through your arrival uh, just how how did how were you called in um talk a little bit about your work of course that that sort of led you there and then what was that sort of onboarding experience like
0: well i'm actually half australian i'm half american um i grew up around seattle um but i put a backpack on to travel around the world for a year and that was 20 years ago i haven't made it back since but most of that time was spent in australia i met a girl I went to school, I became a vet and then a wildlife vet. And um, so I have citizenship in Australia as well. So a little while ago, uh, well, I was there for 15 years. And while I was there, I was a bit involved in the bushfire response um, as a wildlife vet, mainly in planning. And I remember I was um, with my sister uh, in California during Christmas and the fires were really, they were really in full effect at that time. And I remember telling myself, there aren't many people that have the skills that I do in terms of I can, I'm not only a wildlife fed, but I actually specialize in Australian wildlife and I have bushfire response. I just feel, I feel, I felt like I needed to go back. I felt like I needed to go be a part of just fighting the fight to save these important animals. So like literally I just got on a plane. I got on a plane with no definite plan. And I, um, I hit the ground running. Um, the reason why I got to work with some amazing individuals and groups that were really at the forefront on the ground working um, to save the uh, the wildlife was that I I developed relationships the years before, and they knew me. They've worked with me, and I could just kind of just slot right in and be part of the team. It was it was great um, from that perspective.
1: And, ju- and just as a, I think it's helpful to set the stage of just how. Uh, how how large scale this issue was for folks that, you know, as we talked about, there has been a lot that's gone on in the world uh, since the bushfires. So just sort of recap it for folks. You know, most accounts, there was 11 million or so hectares uh, burned. Um, And just for context of what that means, since we don't use hectares a lot in in the U.S. from a measurement standpoint, um, the California fires in 2018, uh, which were pretty devastating, especially for those of us here in California, were 800,000 hectares. So you're talking about Australia being 12, 13 times that. And uh, the entire country of England, I believe, has a landmass of around 13 million hectares. So you're talking about uh, 11 million hectares, being, you know, almost the entire landmass of the country of England. Um, so these were kind of devastatingly large fires. Um, I believe over 1.25 billion Wildlife lives uh, confirmed, lost, estimated to be lost. I think forty nine species have lost eighty percent or more of their habitat. Uh, and and you know just to give folks a sense of how hard these fires were and are to uh, get a get a hold of, bushfires and grassland fires move much faster than forest fires. And I believe there are accounts of the bushfires moving at a pace as high as sixteen miles an hour which, you know, again, for context, uh, you know, average human runs around six to eight to 10 miles an hour. Um, you know, Usain Bolt runs 27 miles an hour at his top speed. Um, but that's obviously not, uh, not a, um, uh, an endurance run for Usain Bolt. Um, and so 16 miles an hour continuously flowing, uh, you can just imagine how hard that is to sort of get out in front of and control. So I just, I think it's helpful just to remind people of just how large and how devastating and how difficult these fires were to, 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 to manage.
0: I, I think, you, you know, the, the, the numbers are, are telling um, you, you, you're talking about over, over th- with this event, over 30 lives lost over 3000 homes lost, you know, over a billion animals killed, um, over three hundred million tons of carbon di- um, um dioxide emitted into the air and you could you could see the smoke even seven thousand miles away in South America. Those are really powerful numbers but i've I've spoken with people also on the ground um that were around when the fires were happening and they they they're called crown fires. So the fires really spread, especially along the treetops of these eucalypt eucalypt trees, and um, the eucalypt trees are the leaves are full of a lot of oil, and so they will literally explode. So what they oh. say is that um a lot of people have um, post traumatic stress and and for the rest of the of their life will have it because you know they they have run ran for the life. Um, they've lost everything they had, and a lot of times, a lot of them have lost family members. And they, I've talked to one person, and they said literally, it was like the sound of a Boeing seven forty seven engine. It was the the it's sort of like a rolling explosion across a hilltop hillside coming towards you at a pace mm-hmm. that you could never outrun. And um, I spoke with uh, a man who. Um, his property was the property on which unfortunately four Americans lost their lives fighting the fires when their plane crashed into the hillside. And he was telling me about that day that happened and he was trying to, uh, to flee in his truck. And the smoke was so thick that he had to crawl at a pace of maybe sort of three or four or five miles an hour. And he'd, and he'd go to the left side of the road and see the left side and then to the right and see the right. And he could only sort of bounce back and forth as he was driving down the road at that pace because he literally could not see in front of his hood. Um, and, and that was what it was like. It was, um, it was something that most people, you just can't escape once it's coming for you.
1: Yeah, it's terrifying, honestly. And of course, those exploding eucalyptus trees you know, home to a lot of wildlife, but particularly koala, uh, which is why, you know, we've saw so many koala, uh, you know, burned and, and suffering. Um, Paul, can you, can you sort of give us and some, you know, anecdotal stories of being on the ground? Uh, you mentioned how you got there, you sort of just got on a plane, uh, you used your contacts and you hit the ground running. Um, once you started, uh, you know, getting in to, uh, the fire, um, uh, the the, the areas devastated by the fire or still on fire. Um, and starting doing some of the the rescue work. Can you share a couple sort of stories or anecdotes that kind of stick out to you?
0: It was interesting. I mean, I expected to have at least the weekend to sort of de- degas and prepare for how I was going to do this. And I arrived on a Saturday and, um, on Sunday morning at seven in the morning, I had a phone call and I said, Paul, um, we need you now. We're sending a plane. Um, and it was that urgent, like the the call to to go rescue animals. That was a, that was a little bit of a separate incident to what my work in, in especially in New South Wales with the bushfires. But um, things were happening at such a large scale and fast pace that it was um, uh, it was hard to keep up with. I, I, I one sort of um, overwhelming memory I think when I look back on it is. Um, when you're on the ground and you're looking for survivors and you're walking in this area that it just, um, you know, a few weeks before um, you, you, you couldn't even step, you know, six feet in front of you. Cause it was so thick with vegetation, but now you can see into the vast distance. What was most eerie was the um, and as, as far as the, eye could see was the incredible silence you, you stood there and all I heard was the, all I heard was the tinnitus in my ears, right? I have tinnitus and I, I couldn't hear a thing for 20 miles. There was nothing. There was, there was, there was no sign of life, even by, even by the sound. And that was really, really eerie to me. Um, really disconcerting when you're out there and all you can hear is, um, maybe a bit of wind, but, uh, and, and you can smell the, the burnt charcoal and, um, and you can, you know, you can see where recently, you know, the, the ground had fallen away because the roots had burnt out, and you have to watch your step because um, it could still be on fire. Um, and you're surrounded by widowmakers—these trees that are—they look okay, but the inside is burnt out, and any moment they can fall over. Um, so even though it's it's really really quiet, it, it's a very dangerous environment to work in. Um, but that the silence was really something that got to me. Yeah.
1: What about Paul? The in terms of the wildlife you were rescuing, um, can you can you? There's, there's a mix of koala, kangaroo. Those are sort of sort of the wel- most well known, let's say, uh, Australian animals for, for foreigners. But um, were there any other wildlife you were directly working with, or you directly saw in the in the rescue process?
0: I mean, most animals or people, if you're surrounded by flames like that, you're not going to survive. Um, so most things on the ground wouldn't, didn't survive. Wombats, they fared a little bit better because they can d- dig these deep holes and tunnels in the ground. And there were mm-hmm. stories of even other animals going into wombat burrows to seek shelter. Um, and, um, and, and they lived because of the wombats, um, kangaroos, if they were at the fringe enough, they could, they could run away, but then they had to run through the flames and through the hot ground and the coals. And so we saw a lot of burnt feet and burnt hands. Um, and koalas, you know, koalas are stuck in trees. They don't move fast, and um, unfortunately, if they were in in the way, there was there was there was nowhere for them to go. The only ones that would that would have survived are the ones at the very very fringes, and so they were left hanging in trees that had been killed by the radiant heat, with no food to eat and no water to drink. So every koala you saw was starving and dehydrated. And so it was critical to get them rehydrated um but even then it sometimes it was too late because they would have had kidney failure, is, is an example um and uh they've been you know they've been there for weeks um it was it was hard to walk away from a forest knowing that there were many many animals left behind in the forest um, one one interesting i mean some at one place I worked I was taking care with a taking care of a a group of eastern grey kangaroos, and there were a lot of mom, mothers and babies. And I was looking around. I was recovering this mother from her sedation uh, that she just had because we were having to change her her bandages um, regularly from her burns. And I looked, I looked down, and there was her baby. And I thought, Why are you? why are you unaffected at all? You're not burned at all. And she's got these singed airs, which were going to fall off. They were dead. The singed whiskers. She smelled of smoke. Her hands and feet were burned third degree, full thickness burns. Um, and the baby was unaffected. And it hit me that what happened was, you know, she put the baby in her pouch and she fled the fire to save her and her baby's life. And she didn't have to do that as a wild animal. She would have had a much better chance to throw her baby. Um, and run for her life. She can always make another baby, you know, as a wild animal, if, if your choice is to survive so you can make progeny, that was the better choice. But she chose to save her baby, baby's life and sacrifice herself. Um, and it was really a powerful moment as I, as I s- sat there in the, on this couch in this room with her um, as her baby was just, you know, laying, laying next to her, wait, waiting for its mommy to, to wake up. It was very powerful.
1: Wow, what an amazing moment. Yeah. Uh, and Mother's and just love, goes man. To show you, mother's love. Yeah. yeah. Mother's, mother's yeah. Love is powerful yeah. and goes to Don't show you how much how much mm-hmm. humans and non humans do have in common. Um and how much, you know, deep, deep values we do share. Um can we t- uh, I wanna talk a little bit, Paul, about the impact you saw um of the while of the bushfires on indigenous people in Australia and uh if there's anything uh, you can share on that, anything you saw, any thoughts you have, you know, I think very few sadly uh people um let's say in the us and the western world are very even aware of uh indigenous people in Australia. they've been sort of pushed into the center, so to speak um over you know centuries and decades of oppression um and you know their homes is the is the uh, natural world and they depend on this and they don't have, you know, as much economic means to just rebuild or recover. Um, so is, can, you, can you talk a little bit about anything you saw, any, any Indigenous people you spoke with, um, your kind of perspective on the impact these wildfires had on Indigenous Australians?
0: In, in, the, in tw- 2019 and 2020, the only interaction experience I had with Indigenous people were a group of landowners who had been their The fires had gone through their land. And um, they had to remove the koalas that were rem- remaining in an emergency and bring them to somewhere, a, a place of safety. And they were fighting to get those koalas back. Um, I, I don't want to name names, but the, 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 the the place that had the koalas didn't want to give them back. And um, they felt very strongly that this is a part of their heritage and part of their land and almost a part of their spirit that they, these animals belonged on their land. And as soon as the land was ready, in other words, the vegetation had grown back, I think rightly so, um, they should have them back. And, and that was, that was, that was one I know battle that was going on, but to be honest, I don't have a lot of experience with indigenous people in Australia. Um, my, I lived in the, um, in the southeast and the state of Victoria, and there are not a lot of Indigenous people left. They were they were exterminated, really. And in, in Victoria, when you as you go up north and to Queensland and to the Northern Territory, the culture is much much more intact, and it's and they're much much more present. Um, but as you really in Victoria and New South Wales, it's 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 not they're not as um, part of everyday life as they as they should be as they are up further up north.
1: Hmm. And we'll get to we'll get to some of the indigenous land practices that, um, you know, when we talk about prevention going forward, um, before we kind of move into the, the cause and, um, and, uh, and talk about uh, climate change and some of these other um, bigger topics, anything else, Paul, you want to share about your experience on the ground? Uh, anything that's kind of stuck out to you, or any, any lessons learned, any perspectives change, anything anything like that?
0: From a personal perspective, what I learned was that um, a small group of individuals can make a difference. I, I, I met up with a small group of individuals who formed um, a group called Vets for Compassion. And I also worked with a larger group called IFA, or the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And those two groups, even though they're very disparate and sort of their goals and where they work. Um, they just cast aside their agendas and they were like, let's work together to get this done. Um, they don't care who took, uh, um, you know, who took the, the trophy for saving the day at all. And they just worked together really, really well. While a lot of other groups, unfortunately, there was a lot of infighting. It was very interesting to see that play out. And you just we just sort of stayed below it. It was really inspiring to work with such passionate, capable people. Um, and I'm glad I was a part of it. And I learned lessons about that, that, you know what, sometimes you just got to go and do, it was, it was a good lesson for me. I, I guess another thing that I wanted to, that comes to mind as well is that I was working around these people who had lost their homes and their livelihoods, um, and their land. And they were out there trying to save wildlife. Like they had already lost everything and they're trying to help people. They're trying to help their community and their neighbors, Um, it was, it just spoke to me that, you know, if you can, you can, you can rise above yourself, you can rise above the things that are holding you down and be a better person. If you think about the bigger picture and you think about others in your community, um, it was really powerful to watch. It was, it was very inspiring to be around. And I hope that, I hope that I can be like, I hope that I could be like that if I had come across those challenges, but it was, um, yeah, it was very inspiring
2: i just curious in times of like the length, how long were you out there? Um, and were you just in like one separate area or did you travel around Australia?
0: I wasn't, I wasn't out there for too long. I was out there for three weeks. It was difficult to leave my family. Um, and it was hard to leave Australia because I knew even though, even though the, the media and the government said everything's wrapped up, we all knew that there were tens or hundreds of thousands of animals Survivors still out there and need a rescue, and um, unfortunately, there was strange conversations about how it's it's all over, everything's fine now, and people were jumping up and down saying, "Wait a second, no, there's still survivors out there. We need to go out there," um, and and they weren't allowed to. Um, so that was that was hard to leave, um, but I was out there for three weeks, uh, mainly working. Um, along the border of the ACT in New South Wales. Um, That was the epicenter of where those American servicemen lost their lives. And I worked uh, mainly with rescue wildlife care organizations. Um, We'd set up uh, a triage center in a caravan park. So the caravan park, we set aside the main community center. We meet at a hospital and rescuers would go out during the day and the night and bring back animals in and we'd take care of them. And um, I was also working with the Australian defense force, right? The Australian army. Uh, um, I mean, the Australians in New South Wales, they really, they really brought it. They really came together and um, supported each other. And even the government um, helped out as well. And that was, that was great to be a part of that. I also was in Victoria as well. That was a little bit of a different experience, but um, the, most of my wildlife experience was in New South Wales because that's where the need was, and that's where we were allowed to work.
2: Mm. Is, did you see that there was more need for like people and volunteers or more need for funding, financial support, to complete rescues?
0: There was a worldwide call-out and definitely a nation call-out for volunteers, mm-hmm. for vets and for nurses and for volunteers to help. And everybody was raising their hand. There was a huge list of volunteers ready to mobilize. It was never mobilized. It was never mobilized. People, people all over the world were donating. Um, and that was, really, that was really, really helpful. It was interesting to see where the donations were going. Some, some groups are very, very good at um, marketing and, and some are not so good. Um, mm-hmm. But with the groups that I worked with, the, all of the donations went 100% into on-the-ground work of what we're doing. Um, and we really made the efforts go a long way um and you know really to be honest the group is still out there the group i left behind they're still they're still rescuing animals right now it's not necessarily bushfire animals but they
1: they're still out there
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and these these issues are not necessarily going to to stop um the um, the fires itself are are regular occurrence in australia but the sort of size and scale of these fire disasters that we've seen now, um, California in 2018, saw in the Amazon in 2019 and now in Australia, 2019, 2020, um, sadly are going to sort of <clears throat> be, uh, maybe a regular thing, um, uh, for a while, which brings us to the next big topic. We want to talk about is the role, uh, the climate change and, um, and, uh, and as we talked about at the top of the podcast, um, you know, just systemic issues around oppression and marginalization, racism uh, played a role in this. And it was really interesting for for folks that don't know Australian um, uh, government and politics. They have similar kind of right and left skewing uh, spectrum as we do here in the United States, also similar in the UK and the right wing as it is here in the US is similarly conservative. And uh, a bit more closed minded when it comes to topics like climate change and is some of the old guard money that is benefiting still from a lot of the practices um, that, you know, created climate change in the first place, such as <clears throat> uh, fossil fuels. Um, and just, you know, Australia, actually, for folks that don't know, is the number one exporter of coal in the world. So uh, you know it's gonna <laughs> hard to talk about establishment. That's their literally their number one export is one of the worst fossil fuels uh, we have. And so um, from what I've gathered, what I understand, what I understand about it, there is sort of three, sort of kind of uh, three aspects of what uh, you know caused these bushfires to be so bad. One of them was again that just natural annual weather variability, and that's the part that. Is sort of not any anyone's fault or any 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 anything we can really control. It sounded like there were a couple kind of perfect storm weather issues that all happened at once, um, and uh, like the Indian uh, you know ocean dipole, which which sort of uh, creates more dryness. Um, so it, there's there's one aspect of just natural weather variability of a uh, variability, which seems like the right wing side of Australia, um, as you would expect puts a hundred percent of the responsibility on and uh then there's the second piece which is global warming um and australia has been getting warmer uh two of their high their highest records ever daily daily averages were recorded last year december 18th was 41.9 degrees celsius in australia their highest day ever um i shared a, a chart with um Paul, you and you and Anna ahead of time that just shows the increasing in temperatures uh, in Australia um, from Celsius changes, which we can link to in the podcast. Um, and also drier. I mean, one of the things about climate change is global warming warming sort of makes you know kind of wetter areas worse and makes hurricanes and flooding more intensive and it makes drier areas drier and you know, without you know going into why because that's a whole other uh that could that's a rabbit hole of a discussion um that we could do a whole podcast on but just know that you know they do intensify sort of existing weather conditions often and so Australia is getting drier and warmer at the same time um which doesn't condone well for bushfires and then the third piece is land management and sort of the fact that uh you know we we modern agriculture That is only interested in, in output and profit creation quickly disregards land management practices that are designed um, to prevent these things from spreading. And, you know, this is where the suppression of indigenous cultures really shows its ugly head um, because indigenous Australians have practices for creating kind of fire breaks or fire lanes in between vegetation and, um, you know, burning them to the, to the edge of those breaks during colder seasons and preventing these things from going to, to this scale. But of course, indigenous culture has been completely, um, uh, just destroyed, um, by, uh, by modern Australian, uh, Australian culture and practices. So would you, Paul, would you agree that the cause of these bushfires is, is a result of those three things like the weather variability, climate change, and, indigenous oppression all played a role in the sort of scale of this?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I must say though, like in the last few years, I've become more and more inwardly silent um, about climate change because it's been, it's been so frustrating to watch how we've played out as a collective society about how we're going to, how we talk about this. And, and that is um, that we talk in these big scientific words, about um, oh we don't know it's you know we're only ninety eight percent sure or it's very complex and, and then the, the classically the politicians will say I don't want to talk about it people are losing losing their lives um, this has been happening for millennia um, it just it fogs the water so much and it's crazy to me that something that is right in front of our eyes and that science is saying is happening is still up for debate in 2020, let alone in 1990, it shouldn't have been up for debate. Um, and its and I can't believe that 20 years later, we're still t- saying the same things. And i it's hard with science and communication. Um, I just sometimes I want to wring the neck of scientists. And I want to say, stop talking like scientists. Stop, Start talking like people and talk mm-hmm. to people. Um, like be present in the world. Stop relying on media to um, if you have an important message that you need to get out there, like you deliver it and talk like a person, uh, it's been very, very hard to watch this. And so, um, I've just become very quiet on it because, um, in, especially in the US, I, I feel like, I feel like nothing matters, you know, like you can do anything, anything goes and nothing matters. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Like being honest is no longer a virtue. Um, so it's hard. But yes, absolutely. Along your points, definitely, you know, ignoring the indigenous people and their practices um, is definitely a factor in that they would they would practice, um, you know, fuel control during the the, the cooler months. And they weren't given a seat at the table. They've never been given a seat at the table, Um of course, you have the bad luck and you've got those seasonal variations as you've had for a thousand years. But you're you're talking about all of this happening on of, with the overlay of an increased one degree Celsius so far. I mean, it's a fact that, that Australia has increased by one degree Celsius since in the last century and it's continuing to rise. And so you overlay that on top of that and makes things much, much worse. One degree doesn't sound like a lot, but really, really it is. Um So when all these things come together, um, it makes for the perfect storm. But I would say the biggest driver for me, um, because it's the biggest driver that we really have control over that infects us all, that's going to have the biggest impact in the future is climate change. Um, The fire seasons are starting earlier, they're ending later, and they're hotter. And that has nothing to do with land management practices, has nothing to do with arsonists Regardless of what the politicians say, and that's how it is. um and I wish people would just say that's what's happening. That's concerning. Let's find a way to solve this it's It's hard if that makes sense.
1: yeah what what's the political climate on um on climate uh, change? In Australia, Paul, is it as divisive as it is here in the U.S.? Um, is it worse? Is it uh, like what? What's the sort of Australian political landscape look like when it comes to uh, um, climate change?
0: Well, I think it's worth mentioning that about two thirds of all media is owned by one person, Murdoch. It's just you know, it's interesting to note, um, and so there is uh,
1: that, definitely. That
0: Yeah. So, so literally he has the power to control the conversations. He has the power to put in front of people and the regional rural communities. What, you know, if all three newspapers are his newspapers, they don't have any options in whatever they consume. Um, that's the reality. Um, so, so literally the media there is, is, um, Pretty much, almost an, almost a monopoly controlled by very few individuals, and they control the political debate. Unfortunately, um, as a result, he's also known as the kingmaker. Meaning, you know, you better not sort of rise up against him, and you better fall in line. So, a lot of the politicians, especially on the right, um, even though they're at the coal face of of where climate change is happening now with the impacts, like the sea level is warming the, the 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 great Bear reef is being is being killed the the bushfires are you know rather than happening every how many decades it's going to be every half decade despite all that happening around them in their own world they're still um denying it's happening and they're still um just pandering to i guess their own political agenda um so it's very yeah it's it's very disparate the 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 parties there unfortunately it's 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 confusing like i understand like if you're from a temperate company country like england and the the changes are subtle and oh this is nice we have a longer warmer summer oh um we can grow wine now you know i I understand how it's it if it's more subtle you're more accepting of it because it's not as noticeable but in a country Mm -hmm. like australia where it is bloody hot and the fires are are horrible um I, it's, I don't understand it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that. Really?
1: Either of you remember inspector gadget, the cartoon, doctor, <laughs> yeah. sorry. What cartoon inspector gadget. Do you remember inspector oh, gadget? Kind of. Yeah. The, the villain inspector gadget, who is always just seen stroking his cat sitting behind his like, in his ivory tower of monitors always just reminded me of Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that he is it's, just this, just diabolical, just vile uh, person who is just puppet, you know, kind of a puppet master type of villain. Like he's not on the ground fighting. Um, you know, he's not, uh, he doesn't have any, like he, he just gets so much pleasure out of being, having so much control from his like central mission control center. And has got, is at a place where he, is only optimizing for more and more control and, you know, fear mongering and all these things are, and, you know, uh, his, his tools and, and like, and, and having control of information. Right. But yeah, he always, he always reminded me of the, the villain from doctor, uh, from inspector gadget.
0: It, it's difficult. It's really also hard to, it's hard to, I don't really say much about it to be honest, because people are just not going to change, right? The only people that are going to change, are the young people, the millennials and Gen Z? You know what I mean. And I, I'm, all my hope is lying in them. But the rest of us, like your ship is sailed. Like whatever political agenda you are you bought into, you're not going to really change that. And that goes for for all of us. Um, so I kind of keep it to myself because, again, like it feels like nothing matters. And all I can do is is in my own way, be positively, be aggressive and positive at the same time to make my mm-hmm. own difference and and don't pay mind to whatever's happening around me or, or what that person's doing over there. But I can only do what I can do and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to be, I'm going to be optimistic and I'm going to be aggressive about that. And that's been my approach to things. Um, cause if I get tied up in my own thoughts about why does this person do this? It, it just kind of gets me down and which then will slow me down and I need to move cause there's, there's no time left. Um, but it's also scary to talk about that because like if you become well-known enough, they can take you down, you know, like you're, you're fair game and it's, that's really scary. Cause, and they will, um, they will mm. protect themselves, I guess. Yeah.
1: Let's well, protect their power and control, right? Really? Yeah. Well, then, then protect themselves. Yes. Uh, that's right. It's, it's, really what they're they're kind of guarding against um so it sounds like the the the, the political culture and and climate is is uh is, is no better than what it is here in it, the, it's very in the um, so
0: basically uh, australia basically has kind of is, is divided most of australia is on the coasts um, because there's not a lot of arable land in the middle right and most of its constant most of the population is concentrated in like a half a half a dozen cities that's melbourne sydney uh perth brisbane i mean that's like literally it and those cities you tend to to be more um liberal we call them liberal but like liberal means right wing in in australia um they tend to be a bit more liberal like they do i guess in the west coast of the us um but the rest of australia isn't so and so even sort of physically there's there's a great divide and it's unfortunate because they're all living in the same place and they all they all when it comes to it they all have the same concerns but they're all listening to different voices
1: yeah that's yeah that's uh, that's a big part of the problem here too yeah what has there been any positive change like has the climate change topic shifted at all since uh the bushfires um i mean it's hard it's got to be one of those things where you, if you're in australia You live in australia let's say you are on the conservative side that has been in denial more or less even if you're getting political arguments that the denial is valid you can't ignore what what the country just went through so like has there been any shift at all or is it still the same people i think it's impossible
0: to it's impossible to say to now say, okay, climate change is not happening. Instead, it'll shift to, okay, it's happening, but we have nothing to do with it. And then it's gonna then it'll go to, okay, we have something to do. We have something to do with it, but not much. Or to the treatment will be far more painful than the cure. Um, so it's just like you're clawing your way up this mountain. And I think what it's gonna take is it's gonna take um, the millennials and Gen Z to step step up and say enough is enough. Um, I guess we're going to have to act like the adults here. And when they do become adults, um, they're going to sort of enact the change. So I think, you know, it definitely there's the change is happening, but um, we're just going to have to wait for the leadership of the young. (laughs) I have a a feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a good, that's a good thing um, because it's, it's going to happen. Like Gen Z in the US, it's like, you know, 90 million strong. Uh, 25% of the U S is, is, Gen Z, so meaning like ages sort of eight to 23. They're much more, they're much more diverse. They're much more politically active. They're much more practical. And um, one recent study just showed that, you know, 80% of them really want to vote. So they're up and coming. Um, and I look forward to, to them um, stepping up. It'll be a fun, it'll be a, a good thing to to watch the young sort of try to con get control of their own future over the next five to 10 years.
2: Oh yeah, most definitely. I'm curious about, um, your, your use of TikTok and spreading like your message, like both your videos about Australia, um, while you were there, like, is that, is your intention to target those Gen Z, um, like demographic or like, how did you end up, Joining TikTok, I'm just curious in that how it's helped you elevate messages.
0: Okay, so you're the only one who's noticed that. Um, that's something that I um, wrote to myself about 18 months ago. That, like, what do I, I sort of discovered a couple years ago what my passions were and how I feel that I want to make a change in this world. And mm-hmm. I really want to make a, a difference in the world by by storytelling. By uh, let me, I'll back up a little bit. As a wildlife vet, very very like early in your days, it's immediately apparent that when something comes through your door, a sick animal, an injured animal, wildlife, it's almost never about the animal. It's never about the individual. It's always about the environment. Something wasn't quite right. And so from that day one, when I, when that sort of, that key turned in my mind, I like I saw that that applied to us as well in our world and, and, and how connected we are to the natural world. I mean, look at where we are right now with the coronavirus. Look at the Australian bushfires. Mm-hmm. It happens with um, most things around us. It's it's because of something's um, something's quite out, out of balance in the environment. That could even go for refugees and um, conflicts and droughts and all of it, it's all connected. Um, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to just help to show the world to acknowledge that we're actually a part of the natural world. That's what I want to do. And once you acknowledge it, then you might start to accept, oh, okay, I'm a part of it. Maybe I should be a part of the solution as well. And and that's, that's kind of where I see my role is just to show people how connected we are to the natural world. But I feel that the people that are most open to dialogue, to ways of new thinking, um, to humility are the young people. And so those are the ones that I want to reach most. In 2018, I went to Borneo and I made a documentary film around orangutans and deforestation, um, and that led me to my my role on a TV show for for Nat Geo Wild. And but on my own, um, I just use the phone in my pocket to post on TikTok, and um, I, I I just learned the skills of storytelling through practicing, you know, with my YouTube videos and silly family. F- Films, and I never really intended intended for it to go big with TikTok. I just enjoy making little films and storytelling. But, um, yeah, I went from twelve thousand to one hundred fifty thousand within the period of like ten days when I was in Australia, because I really touched yeah. a nerve around the world. Like one of my videos in particular, it hit you know tens and tens of millions of views all around the world and was shared and was even on the NBC Nightly News primetime in the US. Um, and uh, and that was a really uh, that was sort of a, a moment for me where I realized that um, I could actually do this on my own. I didn't have to wait for a gatekeeper or someone to ask me permission to sh- to to um, be in front of someone else. I can actually do this on TikTok. So it's it's um it's something that I'm really passionate about.
2: That's awesome! Congrats! Yeah, it's definitely like the. the- platform you I know mean, we had an episode we recorded with um another tiktok um oh yeah I guess, yeah like, influencer. i heard that yeah yeah and like I think the guy from, think from
0: oregon yeah he's from the oregon coast yeah
2: yeah. i want to hook up with him man he's um
0: that's i'm a, I'm around from where he's at around the pacific northwest okay. and so i totally jived with what he's saying i i really like um yeah i really really like what he's saying and i like his videos um yeah no that was cool mm-hmm.
1: we, can, we can put you guys in touch yeah, definitely. And Paul, I don't know if you, I don't know awesome. if you know this. I I actually ran product strategy at TikTok for a couple of years.
0: You sorry, you won products for who?
1: I ran product strategy for TikTok for a couple of years.
0: Oh no way! Oh, yeah, wow.
1: I I was uh I led the I you know was part of the process of tra- of the evolution from Musically to TikTok.
0: No way! Really? Yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh! So I was
1: there. I was there. Twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen.
0: Oh my gosh you were you were right at the sort of the, the crux of what was all happening
1: like you were I, part of that that's that awesome was, that was uh yeah f- absolutely um so it's, it's 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 for me it's it's really great seeing tiktok used in such a variety mm-hmm. of ways because i you know i inherited uh when 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 i joined uh the musically team it was still like preteen cringe lip sync videos <laughs> pretty much mm-hmm. yeah, all the time yeah. And I remember yeah. we would just have like countless uh, sessions on how we're going to attract other forms of content in order to make this more broadly appealing. Um, and then, yeah, it was the the for you algorithm and and sort of uh, democratizing, if you will, our, our information architecture that sort of unlock that. And now you see TikTok being used for such a wide variety of things, including now even conservation work like, like Jake and like yourself. So, um, yeah, yeah it's great seeing it sort of being used for things other than uh, cringy dance videos, although it's still used for cringy dance videos.
0: Oh, it but, is. And that's great. I love, yeah. I love those cringy dance videos, but, but that, that goes to my point of, of Gen Z, like they're different yeah. and that like they have much, they have much more of a voice at the dinner table. They have much more influence over their parents buying decisions and in their actions. And like, um, so them taking control and starting sort of the, the TikTok or Musical.ly movement, I can totally see why the adults are now going to join in because um, because the young have much more like say in society. It's fantastic. Love it.
2: Yeah. That's cool. And I think similar to what you mentioned earlier about how even when you you were kind of realizing like, oh, you could use this platform, it was kind of that realization of like you don't need someone to Um, Be like the gatekeeper. You can literally do it yourself. I feel like that's also a lot of Gen Zers because they have so many of these amazing tools. They have more authority to just like speak up or like be a voice to either like environmental movements or just like all of those. I think it's, it comes like with the tools, with all this access to knowledge, they also have this authority that they give themselves, which is really powerful.
0: It's it's really cool. I mean, um, that definitely was not around even five years ago. You know, you, you still like you still struggled, mm-hmm. but definitely when when I was sort of trying to, to to rise up and find my place in the world, that that was definitely not an option. So it's awesome to see you know your Malalas and your Greta's out there, just saying you know what I'm going to have a voice, and um, it's great. Like platforms like that kind of help them have a presence in the world. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. It's uh and you see I mean it's just a stark such a stark contrast here in the US. You see the the average age and the youth involved in the social justice demonstrations, um in some of the climate marches, you know, that we've had over the last year in different cities. And then, you know, I'm just like I got my TV running on the background and seeing a camera pan over uh Trump's Tulsa rally and it's just like you know, the average age might be 55. It's crazy. Cring- um, it makes me cr- cringe. And, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. It just, it just, yeah. it just shows you like it is, it's such so generational that um, yeah. all over the world, right? We're talking about Australia right now. It's the same thing that there's just mm. a generation of people who um, to, to, to their credit, right. Um, didn't have all this information. It wasn't widely known. Um, you know, I think of like my, my parents, it's not like climate change and environmentalism was, was taught to them at young ages or even adults. Um, So, you know, it's just so hard, I think, to accept that, you know, you might be wrong about something or that like something you thought you knew or, um, you know, that feels foreign to you, especially now that you're a mature older adult to accept that, you know what I mean? That the world is maybe different than what you learned it to be. Um, It's so hard to accept that because you've spent decades of your life Um, uh, you know, not being, being told otherwise, frankly, being taught otherwise and to unlearn so many things as you age, as you lose some of your neural neuroplasticity and ability to even rewire your brain and rethink. Um, it's, it's just so, so hard to get older generations to move. And, you know, with the younger generation, they're growing up in a world where these things are talked about. These things are all, all over their social media. Um, there is a lot more data. Um uh on this stuff, and so naturally they're they're taking the sort of bull by the horns, but there actually absolutely is a huge generational generational divide there,
0: definitely I mean a, a couple of things like one, if you kind of look back in history, be careful because most of the time youth is right, right so like with the the, yeah. the women's movement and the minority movement, like you pay attention because don't write them off, usually they're right, you know um but yeah, I, I think um, it's it's uh, it's something that I think we all do as we get older. It's really hard to change your mindset and myself included for sure. And I'm sure there are things that I'm guilty of that I'm kind of not quite right about and I need to change. That's really hard. But I really, really hope that I have the humility to um, think about those big picture issues that if I am off the mark, that I have the humility to reset myself and to line myself with with what's important and that is that is truth you know hopefully I, I i hope i try to be that person um but it's it's it takes energy it's it's a struggle yeah
1: yeah it's still crazy to me that um you know i've i've always, i've been pushing for a while that we should lower the voting age to 13 and over um and part of the reason is to think that like a person in their 70s that refuses to use the internet um uh is is sort of uh more more like more equipped to make a an, an informed vote than a like a fifteen or sixteen year old that is kind of reading about modern issues all, all day long. I, I mean, think historically that
0: mean, might have been true. You know, when, you know, when we were like yeah, historically yeah, sure. like two hundred years, years ago go. like Yeah, but not <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know what just- I see now that you mentioned, I see that happening. I see, I see that that that, because that makes, maybe that didn't make sense 50 years ago, but I, mm-hmm. that definitely makes sense now. And I, and I could see that happening. I could see the, the voting age kind of creep back a bit because, um, because like literally young people are physically aging earlier and young in their mentally and physically they're, they're maturing earlier. So I could see that happening.
1: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, so before any, anything, anything else you want to get to before we sort of do the wrap up and, and the intro real quick.
2: No, just thank you again for joining us.
1: Yeah. And, and Paul, I, you know, it, it's worth, again, I want to echo to listeners that, you know, even though the devastation of this season of bushfires in Australia was horrific, um, you know, sadly there's, there's likely more around the corner. Um, and it may not happen, uh, this year or next year, but the, uh, you know, the, these, these kind of like fires we see popping up all over the world. I mean, it's hard to, there's going to be another one somewhere else in the world very soon. And, you know, the planet is getting, um, warmer and the, the spots that are, uh, dry are getting drier. And, um, and our sort of continued exploitation, you know, of land in terms of mono agriculture and non-regenerative, non-sustainable agriculture is proliferated, uh, you know, globally at this point. And, you know, I'm expect, you know, it's, you know, maybe the the palm oil fields in Malaysia and Indonesia are next for a terrible bushfire outbreak. I, I mean, I don't want anything things to happen, but... It's unfortunately, I think we're going to see we're going to see more of these things before they we actually get on top of them.
0: I, th- I think it's important to acknowledge that, yes, in the past every fifty or hundred years we could expect a, a major storm or a massive bushfire. That's true, but the fifty to hundred years has now been moved back to every sort of five, maybe at most ten years. So the the frequency is impacting us multiple times across our own lives, and that's terrible. But Really, the good thing is though is it doesn't have to be this way. this doesn't have to happen like the world does not have to warm we we can change this um it's it's no longer about our i don't think it's no longer is any it's about our individual decisions anymore, although that's important. I think it's really about we're at the point where our back is against the wall and we really need to rise up collectively to put in place leaders who are going to lead us into the future that we want. And that we're going to, um, we're going to also put in place leaders of industry that are also thinking about the big picture and not just the the money picture. Um, so I look at it also in a positive way that, you know what, that's how it is. But the good thing is that we can change this. And, and that's the only way that I can go forward with this situation really. Yeah.
1: Well said. Um, so we're gonna cook, do a quick rapid fire question, Paul. Um, just yeah. sort of like blurt out the first thing on your mind. Um, we can go through this part just within a couple of minutes. Um, what uh, What is a, uh, a nature or wildlife conservation climate book that you recommend everybody uh, give a read?
0: Okay, quick. This is the difficult one because I've, I I feel so guilty. I'm busy and I have young kids and I I don't read as much as I want to. (laughs) So I am, it's not about books for me anymore. It's about reading what's happening in the world and listening to podcasts. And um, I mean, the the, the way that I've I've communicated has changed. I don't read as much as I used to. So I guess I would say that, um, I would say, One thing that I really recommend in terms of you want to read, if you want to learn, is we need to defer to authority a lot more. All of those scientists around the world, the WHO, um, the NASA, all of these big organizations with the scientists who are doing the reading and the research for us, we need to listen to them more. So rather than, I suppose, me saying what kind of book I'd want to read, I'd say let's defer to the authority of those who are doing the work and those who care. And let's also not give equal weight that just because you have a voice, and an opinion, doesn't mean it's of equal weight to someone else as well. Like enough with the political correctness. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say: is um, find the organizations that you admire, that you respect, that you trust, and read about them and listen to them. That's really good advice.
1: Yeah. The long-winded. Sorry.
2: Okay. The second question is, um, what is a a nature or earth climate documentary or film that is not well known, but you recommend everyone see?
0: I, this is funny because it's not necessarily directly related to what you think is, is nature, but it's that, um, it's that one film made by participant media who, you know, it's founded by the, um, the, the um, the the founder of um, what's what's that the the website where you buy things, um, Jeff School the School Foundation right sorry, um, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow what's that one called? Goop. Um, no, no, the one where with the virus, the one with the virus.
1: I have no idea where you're going. Um, where the one okay.
0: Gwyneth Paltrow, it's called um, Contagion. I would recommend oh. if you if you if if we're talking about nature and the natural world and climate change what comes to mind actually for me is the movie Contagion. The the uh, the person who helps to put together the scientific advice for that is um um someone who was involved in almost eradicating smallpox. So real scientists actually had input into that film. And that film was about when you mess with nature too much, when you disrupt the system that we all are all a part of. It'll come back to you in some way, shape, or form. And in that form, it was a virus, like where we are now. And in another form, it can be a bushfire. It can be a drought. It can be a hurricane. It can be rising sea levels. It can be um, a crashing economy for many reasons. So that film is actually really powerful um, in the message that we are very connected to nature, and we need to um, acknowledge that. Mm.
1: Paul, what's your favorite animal on earth?
0: I have a special affinity with marine turtles. Um, I really love their life history. So you know, imagine one day you you hatch out of a shell and you make that dangerous crawl across what it feels to you like a miles across down a beach into the water. and then you're gone for like 30 years. You're like on the other side of the world for like thirty years, and then thirty years later you come back to exactly where you're born. Um, I mean, to give birth to the next generation—it's amazing. Um, so I really have a, a strong connection with with the with sea turtles. Um, they're just beautiful, amazing, wise creatures that um, are still a mystery to me, and I love I love it when things are still a mystery to me. <laughs>
1: That's great. Anna, yeah, you want to ask the last question?
2: Yeah. What is one behavior change that you think everyone should adopt? I guess to to like, quote unquote, save the world or just to try to have a, a better impact on the world.
0: I think one behavior thing that I think we all should adopt is something that we used to value, but we no longer think is something to strive towards. And that is to be honest now i'm not necessarily talking about the honesty in in the in the sense of like george washington chop chopped down the cherry tree kind of honesty i'm talking about the honesty with yourself it's i think that we all are so like obsessed with our own little sound bites in our own silos in our own self um formed communities that we never look up anymore we never listen to each other anymore we never listen to the world anymore and that's, that's a real, that is like the ultimate dishonesty that you're not dishonest mm-hmm. with yourself and in your place in the world. So, um, I think we should all strive to be more honest, which leads to humility and, and leads to wisdom. I say like, um, I have an equation of, um, integrity. Integrity is honesty plus courage. You, you, you mm-hmm. gotta have all three.
2: Absolutely great
1: thank you paul um and thanks so much for your time today and no uh, all the work and the work you did you just you continue to do and the work you did um on the ground in australia i think all of us are, are thankful for the the people sort of brave enough um you know and, and, self, and selfless enough and compassionate enough to kind of put themselves right in the middle middle of that well, thanks guys
2: Keep up with all of Paul's work at Vet Paul Ramos on Instagram and TikTok. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're always open to hearing feedback. Thank you all and take care.